the What is Bitcoin podcast. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the What is Bitcoin podcast. Like I say every week, the What is Bitcoin podcast should end up being around 10 episodes. I'm producing these episodes to really help make it easier for you to understand Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network. Just trying to build a resource here. If this is the first episode you've listened to, I really do recommend that you go back to episode one and start listening from there forward. These are done in a certain order. My name is Gary Leland, and I run the CryptoPodcaster.com network. You may recognize my voice from some of the other podcasts I do, like the Crypto Cousins podcast, the Railroaded podcast, and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Before we go any further, I do want to make sure everyone listening knows about the BitBlock Boom conference. That's right, it's a Bitcoin conference that's held every year in Dallas, Texas. During BitBlock Boom, all we talk about is Bitcoin, not altcoins, not blockchain, just Bitcoin. It's really a Bitcoin maximalist conference. We have a great line of speakers this year and every year. So when you get a chance, take a moment, go look at our speaker lineup and see for yourself. And if you decide to attend the conference, use the discount code COUSINS, like your cousins and nephews, but use the discount code COUSINS, C-O-U-S-I-N-S, at checkout, and you'll receive 30% off the price of your ticket. Now, the event has been fantastic uh, the last two years, and next year's event is going to be great also. So take a look today at bitblockboom.com. Now, let's get on with the show. On this episode, I'm going to read Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, which is titled Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer Electronic Cash System. You may ask, why am I reading a white paper? A white paper is just a lot of boring stuff. Yes, reading a white paper could end up being the most boring episode that I've done in this podcast. But this particular white paper may turn out to be one of the most important white papers and projects of the modern era. This is the white paper that started the entire world of cryptocurrency as we know it today. I'm very involved in the world of Bitcoin, but personally, I never took the time to read the white paper until now. And I assume there are a lot of other people out there who have also never taken the time to read it. Well, now you don't have to find the time. You can sit back, drive your car, go for your walk, and continue whatever you're doing, and listen to the Bitcoin white paper. I've never seen or heard anyone read this, not on YouTube, not a podcast, not anywhere. So I thought, well, I'd go ahead and read it and make this another part of this resource for other people. Before we start reading Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper, let's find out who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I normally start with Wikipedia. I think I've started every episode maybe with Wikipedia. So I guess we shouldn't stop doing that. So let's see what Wikipedia has to say. And according to Wikipedia, Satoshi Nakamoto is the name used by the unknown person or people who developed Bitcoin, authored the Bitcoin white paper, created and deployed Bitcoin's original reference implementation. As part of the implementation, they also devised the first blockchain database. In the process, they were the first to solve the double spending problem for digital currency using a peer-to-peer network. They were active in the development of Bitcoin up until December of 2010. Now, actually, out of all the episodes I've produced where I went to Wikipedia for a starting point, this may be the first time that Wikipedia had to say something that was completely understandable to the average non-techie person. So very good. But Wikipedia basically said is that no one knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. No one knows if Satoshi Nakamoto was a he, a she, or maybe even a group of people. 
It went on to say that Satoshi Nakamoto solved the double spending problem that all previous attempts at digital currency had by creating and implementing the blockchain, and that Satoshi Nakamoto was never heard from again after December of 2010. Now, there's one thing it didn't say that's kind of interesting, is that Satoshi Nakamoto kept for himself, themselves, herself, the first 1 million Bitcoin ever created. So somewhere on this planet, there's a stash of 1 million Bitcoin that belong to Satoshi Nakamoto, which may make Satoshi Nakamoto the richest person on the planet. But now you probably know as much as anyone else really knows about the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, so let's move on to the white paper. I'm going to read the white paper exactly as it was written, with the exception of some sections of mathematical calculations. I'm not going to read that because unless you're a mathematician, that that can be pretty boring stuff for sure. But you'd better get ready because there's still a lot of technical stuff in here. The title of the white paper is Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system written by Satoshi Nakamoto on October 31st, 2008. Abstract. A purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through financial institutions. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer network. The network timestamps transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof-of-work. The longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU miners. As long as a majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they'll generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. The network itself requires a minimal structure. Messages are broadcast on a best effort basis and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof of work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. Section 1. Introduction. Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. Completely non-reversible transactions are not really possible since financial institutions cannot avoid mediating disputes. The cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility of small casual transactions. And there's a broader cost in the loss of ability to make non-reversible payments for non-reversible services. Without the possibility of reversal, the need for trust spreads. Merchants must be wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they would otherwise need. A certain percentage of fraud is accepted as unavoidable. These costs and payments uncertainties can be avoided in person by using physical currency, but no mechanism exists to make payments over a communications channel without a trusted third party. What is needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Transactions that are computationally impractical to reverse would protect sellers from fraud and routine escrow mechanisms could easily be implemented to protect buyers. 
In this paper, we propose a situation to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer distributed timestamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. The system is secure as long as honest nodes collectively control more CPU power than any cooperating group of attacker nodes. Section 2. Transactions We define an electronic coin as a chain of digital signatures. Each owner transfers the coin to the next by digitally signing a hash of the previous transaction and the public key of the next owner and adding these to the end of the coin. A payee can verify the signatures to verify the chain of ownership. The problem, of course, is the payee can't verify that one of the owners did not double spend the coin. A common solution is to introduce a trusted central authority, or mint, that double-checks every transaction for double spending. After each transaction, the coin must be returned to the mint to issue a new one. And only coins issued directly from the mint are trusted not to be double spent. The problem with this solution is that the fate of the entire money system depends on the company running the mint and every transaction having to go through them, just like a bank. We need a way for the payee to know that the previous owners did not sign any earlier transactions. For our purposes, the earliest transaction is the one that counts so we don't care about the attempts to double spend. The only way to confirm the absence of a transaction is to be aware of all transactions. In the Mint-based model, the Mint was aware of all transactions and decided which arrived first. To accomplish this without a trusted party, transactions must be publicly announced, and we need a system for participation to agree on a single history in the order on which they were received. The payee needs proof that at the time of each transaction, the majority of nodes agreed it was the first received. Section 3. Timestamp Server The solution we propose begins with the timestamp server. A timestamp server works by taking a hash of a block of items to be timestamped and widely publishing the hash, such as in a newspaper or Usenet post. The timestamp proves that the data must have existed at the time, obviously, in order to get into the hash. Each timestamp includes the previous timestamp in its hash, forming a chain, with each additional timestamp reinforcing the ones before it. Section 4. Proof of Work To implement a distributed timestamp server on a peer-to-peer basis, we will need to use a proof-of-work system similar to Adam Back's Hashcash, rather than newspaper or Usenet posts. The proof-of-work involves scanning for a value that, when hashed, such as with the SHA-256, the hash begins with a number of zero bits. The average work required is exponential in the number of zero bits required and can be verified by executing a single hash. For our timestamp network, we implement the proof of work by incrementing a nonce in the block until a value is found that gives the block's hash the required zero bits. Once the CPU effort has been expended to make it safely the proof of work, the block cannot be changed without redoing the work. As later blocks are chained after it, the work to change the block would include redoing all the blocks after it. The proof of work also solves the problem of determining representation and maturity decision-making. If the majority were based off one IP address, one vote, it would be subverted by anyone able to allegate many IPs. Proof of work is essentially one CPU, one vote. The majority decision is represented by the longest chain, which has the greatest proof-of-work effort invested in it. If a majority of CPU power is controlled by honest nodes, the honest chain will grow the fastest and outpace any competing chains. 
To modify a block, an attacker would have to redo the proof of work of the block and all blocks after it, and then catch up and surpass the work of the honest nodes. We will show later that the probability of a slower attacker catching up diminishes exponentially as subsequent blocks are added. To compensate for increasing hardware speed and varying interest in running nodes over time, the proof-of-work difficulty is determined by moving average targeting and average number of blocks per hour. If they're generated too fast, the difficulty increases. Section 5. Network The steps to run the network are as follows. New transactions are broadcast to all nodes. Each node collects new transactions into a block. Each node works on finding a difficult proof-of-work for its block. When a node finds a proof-of-work, it broadcasts the block to all nodes. Nodes accept the block only if all transactions in it are valid and not already spent. Nodes express their acceptance of the block by working on creating the next block in the chain, using the hash of the accepted block as the previous hash. Nodes always consider the longest chain to be the correct one, and will keep working on extending it. If two nodes broadcast different versions of the next block simultaneously, some nodes may receive one or the other first. In that case, they work on the first one they received, but save the other branch in case it becomes longer. The tie will be broken when the next proof of work is found and one branch becomes longer. The nodes that were working on the other branch will then switch to the longer one. New transaction broadcasts do not necessarily need to reach all nodes. As long as they reach many nodes, they will get into a block before long. Block broadcasts are also tolerant of dropped messages. If a node does not receive a block, it will request it when it receives the next block and realizes it missed one. Section 6. Incentive By convention, the first transaction in a block is a special block that starts a new coin owned by the creator of the block. This adds an incentive for nodes to support the network and provide a way to initially distribute coins into circulation since there's no central authority to issue them. The steady addition of a content of amount of new coins is analogous to gold miners expending resources to add gold to circulation. In our case, it is CPU time and electricity that is expended. The incentive can also be funded with transaction fees. If the output value of a transaction is less than its input value, the difference is a transaction fee that is added to the incentive value of the block containing the transaction. Once a predetermined number of coins have entered circulation, the incentive can transition entirely to transaction fees and be completely inflation-free. The incentive may help encourage nodes to stay honest. If a greedy attacker is able to assemble more CPU power than all the honest nodes, he would have to choose between using it to defraud people by stealing back his payments are using it to generate new coins. He ought to find a more profitable play by the rules, such rules that favor him with more new coins than anyone else combined, than to undermine the system and the validity of his own wealth. Section 7. Reclaiming Dispace Once the latest transaction in a coin is buried under enough blocks, the spent transactions before it can be discarded to save dispace. To facilitate this without breaking the block's hash, transactions are hashed into a Merkle tree with only the root included in the block's hash. Old blocks can then be compacted by stubbing off branches of the tree. The interior hashes do not need to be stored. A block header with no transactions could be about 80 bytes. If we suppose blocks are generated every 10 minutes, 80 bytes times 6 times 24 times 365 equals 4.2 megabytes per year. 
with computer systems typically selling with 2 gigabytes of RAM as of 2008 and Moore's Law predicting current growth of 1.2 gigabyte per year, storage should not be a problem even if the block headers must be kept in memory. Section 8. Simplified Payment Verification It is possible to verify payments without running a full network node. Users only need to keep up with a copy of the block headers for the longest proof-of-work chain, which he can get by querying network nodes until he's convinced that he has the longest chain and attained the Merkle branch linking the transactions to the block is timestamped in. He can't check the transaction for himself, but linking it to a place in the chain, he can see that a network node has accepted it and blocks added after it further confirmed the network has accepted it. As such, the verification is reliable as long as honest nodes control the network, but is more vulnerable if the network is overpowered by an attacker. While network nodes can verify transactions for themselves, the simplified method can be fooled by an attacker's fabricated transactions for as long as the attacker can continue to overpower the network. One strategy to protect against this would be to accept alerts from network nodes when they detect an invalid block, prompting the user's software to download the full block and alert transactions to confirm the inconsistency. Businesses that receive frequent payments will probably still want to run their own nodes for more independent security and quicker verification. Section 9. Combining and Splitting Value Although it would be possible to handle coins individually, it would be unwieldy to make a separate transaction for every cent in a transfer. To allow value to be split and combined, transactions contain multiple inputs and outputs. Normally, there will be either a single input from a larger previous transaction or multiple inputs combining smaller amounts, and at most, two outputs, one for the payment and one for returning the change, if any, back to the sender. It should be noted that fan out where a transaction depends on several transactions and those transactions depend on many more is not a problem here. There is never the need to extract a complete standalone copy of a transaction's history. Section 10. Privacy The traditional banking model archives a level of privacy by limiting access to information to the parties involved and the trusted third party. The necessity to announce all transactions publicly precludes this method, but privacy can still be maintained by breaking the flow of information in another place by keeping public keys anonymous. The public can see that someone is sending an amount to someone else, but without information linking the transaction to anyone. This is similar to the level of information released by stock exchanges where the time and size of individual trades, the tape, is made public, but without telling who the parties were. As an additional firewall, a new key pair should be used for each transaction to keep them from being linked to a common owner. Some linking is still unavoidable with multi-input transactions which necessarily reveal that their inputs were owned by the same owner. The risk is that if the owner of a key is revealed, linking could reveal other transactions that belonged to the same owner. Section 11. Calculations We consider the scenario of an attacker trying to generate an alternate chain faster than the honest chain. Even if this is accomplished, it does not throw the system open to arbitrary changes such as creating value out of thin air or taking money that never belonged to the attacker. Nodes are not going to accept an invalid transaction as payment, and honest nodes will never accept a block containing them. The attacker can only try to change one of his own transactions to take back money he recently spent. The race between the honest chain and an attacker chain can be characterized 
is binomial random walk. The success event is the honest chain being extended by one block, increasing its lead by plus one. In the failure in the attacker's chain being extended by one block, reducing the gap by negative one. The probability of an attacker catching up from a given deficit is analogous to a gambler's ruin problem. Suppose a gambler with an unlimited credit starts a deficit and plays potentially an infinite number of trials to try to reach break-even. We can calculate the probability he ever reaches break-even, or that an attacker ever catches up with the honest chains as follows. PQQZ equal equal equal. Probability an honest node finds the next block. Probability the attacker finds the next block. Probability the attacker will ever catch up from Z blocks behind QZ equals, and this is a math. Actually, the math is QZ equals curly braces, one parentheses, Q slash P slash ZIFP less than or equal to QIFP less than Q. Or greater than Q, sorry. So that's why I said this is a math. There's a lot of that later, just to give you a heads up. Given our assumption that P is greater than Q, the probability drops exponentially as the number of blocks that the attacker has to catch up with increases. With the odds against him, if he doesn't make a lucky lunge forward early on, his chances become vanishingly small as he falls further behind. We now consider how long the recipient of a new transaction needs to wait before being sufficiently certain the sender can't change the transaction. We assume the sender is an attacker who wants to make the recipient believe he paid him for a while, then switch it back to himself after some time has passed. The receiver will be alerted when this happens, but the sender hopes it will be too late. The receiver generates a new key pair and gives the public key to the sender shortly before signing. This prevents the sender from preparing a chain of blocks ahead of time by working on it continuously until he is lucky enough to get far enough ahead, then executing the transaction at that moment. Once a transaction is sent, the dishonest sender starts working in secret on a parallel chain containing an alternate version of his transaction. The recipient waits until the transaction has been added to the block and Z blocks have been linked after it. He doesn't know the exact amount of progress the attacker has made, but assuming the honest blocks took the average expected time per block, the attacker's potential progress will be a poison distributed with expected value lambda equals ZQP. To get the probability the attacker could still catch up now, we multiply the poison density for each amount of progress he could have made by the probability he could catch up from that point. Okay, now there's a ton of math, which I'm not going to read. I'm going to skip it because, number one, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not a mathematician. And number two, this podcast is supposed to be for non-techies out there, so it probably won't make any sense to you either. And that's kind of the, the boring part. If you actually want to see the math, you can find this easily online just by searching the Bitcoin white paper and read the math part for yourself. Section 12, Conclusion. We have proposed a system for electronic transactions without relying on trust. We started with the usual framework of coins made from digital signatures, which provides strong control of ownership, but is incomplete without a way to prevent double spending. To solve this, we proposed a peer-to-peer -peer network using proof-of-work to record a public history of transactions that quickly become computationally impractical for an attacker to change if honest nodes control a majority of CPU power. The network is robust in its unstructured simplicity. Nodes work all at once with little coordination. They do not need to be identified since messages are not routed to any particular place 
and only need to be delivered on a best effort basis. Nodes can leave and join a network at will, accepting the proof-of-work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. They vote with their CPU power, expressing their acceptance of valid blocks by working on extending them and rejecting invalid blocks by refusing to work on them. Any needed rules and incentives can be enforced with this consensus mechanism. Now, that is it. That is the Bitcoin white paper. It was a lot to read, and I hope this show has helped you learn a little bit more about Bitcoin, and now maybe you even understand a little bit more about what Satoshi Nakamoto was thinking when he created his white paper about Bitcoin. Since 99% of the people on the planet have never read the actual white paper, you're ahead of most of the people on the planet. I hope this information in this show has been helpful. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. I would love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really helps way more than you realize. And please share this podcast with your friends on social media and let's start educating them about Bitcoin. Don't forget to take a look at the BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference coming to Dallas, Texas at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas, Texas. On the next episode of the Bitcoin Podcast, I am going to go over crypto terms, words that are used in the crypto sphere. Until then, this is Gary Leland, the Crypto Podcaster, saying thanks for taking the time to listen.